Welcome to your commercial-free, uninterrupted investment show. Sponsored by the SEC-registered investment firm, Wilsey Asset Management, a fiduciary firm owned and operated by President Brent Wilsey, who has been putting clients' investment needs first for over 40 years. The Smart Investing Show has been giving unbiased financial information for over 27 years on local radio stations right here in San Diego, providing you with fundamental analysis on stocks and investments you want to know about. Now, here are your hosts, Brent and Chase Wilson. Well, welcome to the Smart Investing Show. I'm Brent Wilsey, president of Wilsey Asset Management, and Wilsey Asset Management is a proud investing partner of the San Diego Padres. Uh, wish they would have won last night. Uh, we're there at the game, but what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? So, anyways, uh, here for the next uh, hour, talking about uh, the economy, investing, uh, growing your net worth. I've got a lot of things to talk about. We're going to talk about the jobs report, uh, kind of surprise there. Uh, also, jobs report. We're going to bring up the jolts report as well. Talk about T-bills and NVIDIA. Uh, Chase, what do you got over there? I was going to say, I was just thinking about the Padres game last night, and I know they're under 500 right now, but just like investing, being a sports fan sometimes takes a lot of patience. Yes. There's still over another 100 games left <laughs> in the season, so we still got time. And Same thing with investing. you got to be patient. But uh, you want to join the show, phone number here, 833-288-0973. Again, that's 833 833- Two eight eight zero nine seven three. You got a stock you're looking at buying, selling, or holding. We'll break down those fundamentals for you and, and give you our opinion on it. And actually, I think the stadium was filled. Last oh, night. it was, it was yeah. packed. People were there. Yeah, and you still have a good time. It's a nice way to spend a Friday night. No, absolutely. Yeah, Petco's beautiful. Yeah. So, all right. Well, let's talk about the jobs report because overall, I'd say the jobs report showed some good numbers. The headline number was strong with an addition of three hundred and thirty-nine thousand new hires. Easily topping the estimate of 190,000. The prior two months were also revised upwards by a total of 93,000. Now, payrolls were particularly strong in healthcare and social assistance, up 74,600 jobs. That's, that's a lot of jobs. But even, and this is surprising, professional and business services up 64,000. I say that because I think that includes banks. I I would think yeah, so. Business, think. yeah. So uh, nice to see that growing, 64,000. Uh, government uh, up 56,000. I generally don't like to see government being a major contributor to the jobs report, but it is important to note that the government employment is still 0.9% or 209,000 jobs below the pre-COVID level in February 2020. Now, there were some negatives in the report. The, the big one that I saw was the household survey showed the number of unemployed persons climbed 440,000, and the unemployment rate increased from 3.4% to 3.7% with no change in the participation rate. While I do like to look at both reports, I will say I give more credence to the establishment survey as it is based on a sample of businesses rather than a survey of households. Now, I do think the report does not provide enough evidence for the Fed to hike in June, and I still believe a skip or a pause makes the most sense here. Yeah, that's the most important thing coming from this jobs report. It was a good jobs report, but there's not everything was great. So I think it still says that the Fed may skip or pause, as they're saying, for, for June. You know, and I, I was I was kind of reading, and, and again, very important to understand, there's two different surveys that come out with this. When you see the headline number for jobs that were created, it is a different survey that they look at for the unemployment rate. And the unemployment rate is based off of household survey data. And... As I was saying, I, I kind of like the, the establishment survey a little bit more. I mean, we've talked before in the past about the ha- household survey. You know, you get a call and it's like, hey, you looking for work? <laughs> yeah. Kind of. Are you employed? No. Well, 
You don't know. It's are, like, are you saying we just shouldn't trust people on those surveys? <laughs> you know, you think about it. It's like I mean, I I don't know. I I I looked on LinkedIn for like ten minutes. So yeah, I'm I'm looking for a job. You know, like there's no real vetting of how hard you're looking for. A and job. I think it even includes: Did you ask anyone about a job? <laughs> yeah, I talked to my father-in-law, and he. He said I didn't know anything, but it, I think it includes when you say, look, it's a very loose. Uh, and, and, and I will say, I mean, it's still, and it's so important. This is why we talk about, you have to look at everything. Yeah. And people are like, oh, the jobs numbers are, it's, it's a bunch of baloney. It's, I mean, it, it's not a perfect science. I, I, I'll agree with you there, but it is still data that you should look at and analyze. And you got to understand the pitfalls of each one. And, you know, just the household survey, I mean, it, it is still important, as you said, but yeah, there's some, there's some questions to it, I guess, but you got to look at the data in yeah. conjunction with one another. You, you look at everything overall and just kind of realize and, and very important we always say you, you got to understand the numbers well you got to understand the reports too and take it with a grain of salt because again we talked about how loose uh they are on yeah i, I asked my father in law if he knew anybody's hiring no so i'm looking like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <okay. laughs> well and, and the other thing too i was uh, reading this morning actually on the establishment survey there was a good point brought out that that typically in the beginning of like an economic cycle is the jobs are almost undercounted. Yeah. And the reason for that is, again, it's a sample of businesses. It's not like they call every single business in the United States and ask. So like a lot of new companies that are starting up, they're not really going to be reflected in that report. But they're saying generally in slowdowns, they under, uh, I'm sorry, overcount the jobs because you're not looking at companies that are perhaps going out of business. Now, I'm not quite sure I, I haven't seen much about you know businesses folding going out of business I, I mean I haven't seen any data on that yet so I wouldn't necessarily say that that this number was overcounted here right but it is something to kind of consider as you go forward you could still see some good jobs numbers but if businesses start to struggle and I'm talking about the smaller businesses which ultimately is a large part of employment in this country that that could be a little overcounting on the establishment survey as well. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens to that. The other thing, too, because that comes out on Friday. Uh, the JOLTS report comes out on Wednesdays. I think it's on Wednesday. It comes out or it's a Tuesday. Uh, it, it's not necessarily a specific day. I think it's a certain time in the month. Month it comes yeah. out. Okay, yeah. Because I, 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 I think other days it's come out on a Tuesday. So, some days Wednesday. But it, so. this one, I think, did come out on Wednesday. Wednesday yeah. And, and JOLTS, by the way, stands for Job Opening Labor Turnover Survey. It's a very important re- report that we look at because it really tells you who's looking I mean, how many jobs openings are actually there? And with the good news, bad news in the JOLTS report, the good news is that the labor market remains extremely strong. The number of job openings climbed from 9.7 million, and this was a surprise, in March to 10.1 million in April. And this means that there were 1.8 job openings for each unemployed worker in the month of April. And also to those layoffs, that's what's really made the headline news. Well, they fell actually by 264,000 in the report to 1.6 million. It's important to remember in 2019, layoffs averaged 1.8 million per month. The bad news is that this does not give the Fed evidence that the economy is slowing and may give them another data point to argue for another rate increase in June. So, I mean, the, the Fed has a lot of data coming in right now, and they're kind of analyzing different things. They want to slow down the labor market. And, you know, that's why I'm kind of hoping the job, uh, assuming the employment situation, the jobs report carries a little more weight than the JOLTS report because the JOLTS report does lag by about a month there. So as I said, those are April numbers where the jobs report is actually May numbers. Right. And, and I do have a small theory. So it's not tested or anything else, but it's a theory that uh, I do believe that even with a strong job market, 
uh, inflation will still go down. The reason I say that is that inflation got so high because when you give somebody a dollar, they're going to spend it like no problem. When you work for that dollar, you're not so likely to spend it so easily because it wasn't a free dollar. You had to work for it. So I, I think we will still see, even the strong job market, I think we'll still see inflation tick down. Um, my prediction is by by December, be in the threes, probably the high threes. It's not going to drop down uh, to the twos. But I think we'll see it continue to decline because prices are coming down. Uh, and people, the other thing that's kind of funny, too, is that people are like, oh, we're going to have a recession, a recession. We cannot have a recession with such a job, strong job market. Well, I agree, but I disagree. Sure. Because it's... You're fired. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's... it's uh, When you look at the... It depends how you define a recession. Yeah. Because if you, if you say a recession is like 2008, yeah, I completely agree we're not going to have a recession. But again, the... the, the the technical definition right. for a well, recession. We had that already, right? We did, but yeah. I don't know. They haven't come out yet if they define that a recession or not. Well, it was two consecutive quarters of negative GDP. We had that. Mm -hmm. and, and actually, I think as you're talking, you're correct. The uh, the true definition of a recession, um, you don't know you had it until about, I think it's a year later. And they say, yes, we had a recession. Yeah. So you, you don't even know. We could have had a recession right. and we're still figuring that out. And we could have the same thing happen. You know, we're going to have... Two consecutive quarters of negative GDP, yeah. which very important to understand, it's in adjusted for inflation. So you could still grow the nominal GDP or the total dollars of production and goods and services essentially in GDP, but because the inflation is a little bit higher than the growth, well, that is technically a recession because the real growth was a little negative. And that's what a lot of people miss. Oh, we're going to have a recession. It's like, okay, if we actually fundamentally break that down, well, let's say – you have a business. Right. Well, you're not adjusting your sales and your earnings for inflation. You're looking at, oh, my earnings went up 4%. Well, inflation went up 4%. So you don't say, I had 0% growth. You know, your earnings <laughs> and your sales are still growing, right. which, which is why we always say equities, stocks, companies, they're the best long-term hedge against inflation because – you're not adjusting for inflation. We're going to keep growing sales, yeah. keep growing earnings. Inflation is the increase in price of goods and services. And it's, if it's you going to work out well. That, yeah, it works out well. And 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 the other thing too is that I I think we'll we won't have a negative GDP. I remember reading before, and it come out probably what July. I think it'll come out for second quarter. Uh, and I saw this. I think with some retailers saying their shelves, well, the, the warehouse shelves are empty. They got to start restocking, and that means. You know, they got to start buying inventory and so forth. So that, that means more production of inventory. Well, I believe the last quarter they were cutting back. So that inventory movement is can be pretty important to GDP. And the other one, too, that we talk about is construction spending. Construction spending yeah. actually came out this month. as was up 1.2% versus like an estimate, I think, of like 0.1%. So, uh, again, that's another part of it is investment in the economy as part of GDP. So, I mean, there's definitely things out there that, that could lift it. I'm just saying I wouldn't be surprised if we had – a decline in GDP just because of the inflation impact on it because we're not growing at five, six, seven percent to offset inflation. Right. So that that's where my, my concern comes in. But when I say that, I don't mean like, oh, my gosh, everything's terrible. It's just we could have a technical recession yeah. when you look at things, but it's not going to be bad. I just, as you said, with the strong labor market. Again, the labor market is going to continue to soften, too. It's not like, you know, we're going to keep growing payrolls. It, it, it's going to slow down. And the job openings will likely come down. And layoffs may increase a little bit. And I'm trying to remember, I don't think payrolls slow down in the summertime. I don't think they be because resorts pick up and people travel. And uh, so I, 
I don't see it slowing down to any major thing. And again, the Jolts report what was it one? What I say, one point eight jobs for every person out there. So you can get a job if you want one. Uh, and I think people are kind of realizing, yeah, I need to go back to work because the government's not giving all this free money any longer. Yeah, so, I, yeah. I mean, we'll see what happens. And and the big thing, I kind of feel bad I didn't put in the the numbers here was the the wage inflation. And oh, I mean that. How'd you forget that? You know, we had a lot going on yesterday. Yeah, it was a busy I, day yesterday. That's and like I was, a whirlwind. Just, I was yeah. kind of typing away, and I realized, oh, or I just realized, <laughs> I forgot the wage inflation, <laughs> which is an important part. You remember? It's up. It was up four point three percent, I believe, year over year, which is again a, a sharp decline from I think five point nine percent in March yeah. of last year. So again, it, it's really decelerated quite largely. And I was thinking the other thing that that's quite impactful is the average work week actually declined slightly. The work week declined slightly. I think Why it was like be? from thirty four point four to thirty four point three, and the reason that's important is because that is kind of a hidden wage deflation. Right. Because if you're declining the work week, but average hourly earnings even stay the same, well, your your total cost to pay that employee actually declined because right. they worked less hours. Who works thirty four hours a week? I don't work. Well, I, I mean, it's an on average. And actually, it's funny. <laughs> no. If you look at, like, um, I think it's, like, the manufacturing sector, their right. average work week is, like, 40-point-something. Right. So that means the service I, sector. I guess it really includes the part-time people. And I people like part-time. You yeah. and I that work 60 hours a week, so we would kind of bring it up. But, yeah, it, it is kind of surprising. Yeah. So. Well, let's talk about T-bills because uh, a kind of funny story. I was in the restaurant last week and could overhear a conversation. Two gentlemen next to us, and I wasn't eavesdropping. You just kind of sometimes hear things, and you hear things that pop up. And, and they were talking about T-bills. It seems everybody's talking about T-bills these days and the yield and what a great investment they are. I agree with that statement. If you're looking short-term returns, but if you're putting long-term money into T-bills, you're making a big mistake here. And, and no one seems to be listening to this advice, though. In January 2020, only $1.6 billion of T-bills were purchased by individual investors. Let's look to April 2023. That number has climbed to nearly tenfold to $13.4 billion. Again, I encourage people not to invest your long-term money in short-term instruments, even when they sound attractive at around 5%. And, and people just look short-term. And, and again, we, we discuss here in the Smart Investing Show, you know, the, the economy, jobs, all this stuff. You should not be afraid of investing. And, and we know that there's a strange thing going on right now that the market's heavily weighted towards one thing, whether, whether your tech companies and the s and is up 12, but the the equated S&P is about flat right now. Uh, it is a very hard time to be investing. But investing is not for the next six months. Investing, and I, and I do believe the next six months we're going to see some nice things happen with the right companies going forward because there's some companies that are just unbelievably priced at ridiculous low levels because I think all this money is going towards AI and all this other crazy stuff. And then they look at these companies, well, wait a minute, this company's growing their sales, growing their earnings, growing their cash flow, paying a great dividend, Oh, maybe I should get that company. Yeah, and I mean, you just look at the numbers behind it, and this is when people get the most emotional, and they say, I, I can't handle it anymore. And, and you might be down, let's say, 5 10% from where you were back at, at the end of 2021, right. we'll call it, because starting 2022 is when things got difficult. It's like, I can't handle it anymore. I'm just going to get out, and I'm going to take my money into a 4%, 5% fixed income instrument. Well, it sounds like that feels good, but the problem is you look at that, you're down 10%. You've now locked in 4% for maybe a year. It's going to take you two, three years to go back to break even on that. Right. And also, too, when you look at 
you know, investing in equities. We know that they're volatile. Yeah. But the the thing is, you could, and I'm not giving any performance numbers, but from today to the end of the year, it's a possibility you could see a 20% gain. Well, now what the heck do you do? Now you've locked your money into a 4% instrument, instrument for the next six months, one year. What do you do after that instrument is up? What if it, rates went down? And now rates are at 3%. Well, that's going to take you even longer to get back to where you were at in, at the end of 2021. Do you get back into the stock market now that things are higher? I mean, it's just you don't want to play this short-term game because you will cost yourself so much money in the long term. And you're so right because you lock that, that T-bill in for six months. It comes due. Now the rate's lower. You use an illustration. Well, you say 10%. You, you missed out a 10% gain. We all know you're supposed to buy low and sell high. Well, now you've locked yourself into either a lower yield. It maybe only goes from 4% to 3.5%. As you said, it's going to take you years to make that difference up. But now you're up, you would have been up 10%. Do you now step in and buy high? We know we're all supposed to buy low and sell high, but the emotions get in the way. That's why our, our slogan has been for years. No emotion, just results. Because once your emotions get up there and people say, I'm not emotional, but I just think we're going to have a recession. I just think that. No, you're not looking at the numbers. That's a feeling that you think we're going to have a recession. So, and that's why most investors don't do well, and that's why over years we've done very well over years. And we have our good quarters, bad quarters, good years, bad years, but we stay the course because we don't get emotional about things and saying, oh, this is going to happen, that's going to happen. And I, you know, I've done this for over 40 years, and I've seen many people destroy their portfolio because they sell when they should be buying and buying when they should be selling. Yeah, and you know, just having this conversation made me think of uh, you know a conversation we had yesterday about I think it was on CNBC. You said a gentleman was saying, "Yeah, I don't know why anybody would buy AT and T at a seven percent dividend yield where you can get the risk free T bill at five percent." Like, <laughs> what? Who let you on the air? That is a stupid thing to say because if you buy AT and T at let's say fifteen dollars a share. You get over a 7% yield. Oh, by the way, they could also increase that yield over time. That's not going to happen with a T-bill. Right. If it goes from 15 to $17 a share, yeah, your return's not 7% anymore. <laughs> it's far above that. <laughs> and it's just it, it, it it's just ludicrous that people have that type of mentality right now. And as you said, if you are looking at maybe buying a house in six months, you are looking at needing funds in six months. 100% I agree with you. Put yep. that money in a T-bill. But if you are looking at this money for retirement in five years, 10 years, if you're in retirement and drawing on the portfolio, let's say, for income, no, don't put it in a T-bill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, 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 it's, and it's hard to do because you feel better about it. But uh, And I know why that guy does that because in the industry, you're told to sell people based on their emotions. We go against the grain. We don't go with people's emotions. No, we go with the fundamentals. We try to educate people on how they should be uh, investing. And it's hard sometimes because you're going against people's emotions and they say, well, I hear what you're saying, but I, I'm just, I'm, I'm afraid. I, I'm just going to go that CD. I'm going to that T-bill. It's like, no, no, you're not thinking with your head. You're thinking emotionally. So it, it, that's what happens. So, but uh, I mean, on the phone lines too, uh, we got one more uh, topic we'll go over here, but uh, phone numbers here are going to take calls in a few minutes, 833 833- Two eight eight zero nine seven three. Again, that's eight three three two eight eight zero nine seven three. And as always, that gets you through for your unbiased, no strings attached, fundamental opinion about what you want to talk about. Let's move on because this has been the news all this week. We got to bring it up here, and I'm talking about Nvidia. I'll hit that one trillion dollar market cap club. I have said I am impressed by the company and the way it's been able to pivot into different businesses. 
but this valuation is just crazy. If we look at combining the market caps for Broadcom, AMD, Texas Instruments, Qualcomm, and Intel, they would only total nine hundred and sixty-four billion dollars. <laughs> Can you imagine if they announced a mega merger of all those companies? People would be like, <laughs> wow, "Wow, that's a huge company!" <laughs> no, still not as big as Nvidia. <laughs> Anyways, uh, last year's total sales for all of those chip companies we mentioned combined would be over a hundred eighty billion dollars. For comparison, in two thousand twenty-three, Nvidia is estimated to have a little over thirty billion dollars in sales. Also, if we look at their sales compared to the other companies in the $1 trillion market cap club, they need a lot of growth to catch up. The 2023 estimated sales for those companies would be Apple at $384.8 billion, Microsoft at $211.4 billion, Alphabet at nearly $300 billion, and Amazon at $559.7 billion. Again, NVIDIA, $30 billion. Now, it, to, it is very likely that NVIDIA will continue to grow sales and earnings at a nice rate. I have no doubt about the growth on NVIDIA over the next few years in terms of the, the company's size, in terms of sales and earnings. But at these valuations, I mean, the company just appears to be priced for perfection. I mean, let's just say their anticipated earnings growth on this company of like 25% over the next few years, and they come in at 12%. I mean, this the stock would just get absolutely right. annihilated because this company has to grow right now it's trading about uh, 51 times january 2024 earnings it's just it's it's expensive and we've yeah. said that for a while but you know it, it went way up and then it got cut in about half and then it's come way back up again and it's just it's crazy. And it's kind of funny. I, I looked over. We do have Christy from Arizona wants to talk about NVIDIA. So I didn't see that as a reason. So we're going to get to you in one minute here, Christy. Uh, but uh, yeah, NVIDIA. And I'm glad you called because we can look at the numbers and give more numbers for people like, like you just did. If you enjoy what we talk about here on, on the newsletter that we, we get from, we have other things we talk about on the newsletter this week. Uh, college degree, the FDIC, understand the FDIC. Also, we talked about uh, car exports, meat sales. It's a free newsletter. It goes out every Friday at about 5 o'clock. Uh, go to our website, smartinvesting2000.com. That's smartinvesting2000.com. Right in the middle of the page, you'll see newsletter. Click on it. Get signed up. Uh, that newsletter is going pretty well. People really like it because it's very concise. You get some great information in a short time frame. Yes. <clears throat> All right. Phone numbers here again are... 833-288-0973. As promised, let's go out to Arizona and speak with Christy. Christy, you're on the Smart Invest Show with Brent Chase. How can we help you? Hi. Um, thank you. Yeah, I just uh, got on and heard you talk about that. I was like, oh, that's, that's what I'm calling about. Your timing was great. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, my mom um, bought, bought it when it was $7 a share. And now... We were looking at it because she said, oh, my God, it's just gone crazy. And she sold some, uh, I don't know, a year or so ago, a little bit, for to balance some losses and things with her finances. And now we looked at it today, yesterday, and the P.E. ratio is over 200. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering, you guys don't like them much over 20 or, you know, Correct. depending. It's, <laughs> it's out of control, so. Yeah, I'm wondering what you guys think. And th- this is you in a hard situation because congratulations on your mom buying. I think it was set at seven. I mean, a, a phenomenal thing there. And sometimes that happens. 
And, and now, and when she bought it, I'm guessing she probably didn't look at the PE ratio or the fundamentals. Just did very well for her. But the question is now, gosh, we got some great profits. Should we hang on to this? So we'll go over the numbers with you and everybody else because it, it is a very popular company now. Uh, NVIDIA, their symbol is NVDA. They are in the semiconductor industry. And I want to point out, too, they're a, a design chip manufacturer. And that's I think that's how they can change so quickly because don't manufacture. They change. They don't just change the factory. They just change their design. So that's how they've been able to be so nimble. Which I think in the long term could be a problem. Yeah. So, but uh, we do see you're, you're correct, Christy. The PE ratio is 206 versus 32 for the industry. And remember, a number means nothing at all unless you have something to compare to. So, 206 versus 32, big disparity there. Price to sales also high, 37.9 versus 5.9. Price to book value, 52.4 versus 349.7. And price to cash flow for NVIDIA, 143 versus 18.5. Now, they do have a good pay ratio. 2.3 versus 8.1. Remember the lower peg ratio, the better. We do see that their earnings per share. Well, that's a shock. Are, are these Maybe these numbers aren't updated. The earnings per share of last year showed they're down 48.5%. So maybe we have old numbers here because it just came out. Strange. Uh, yeah. yeah. So uh, we do see sales uh, over the last year are down 12.4% when the industry is uh, flat. Uh, five-year growth rate for, for uh, NVIDIA, 21.2 versus 12.1. Uh, it shows they have dividends per share of 16 cents, but it's not even enough to register for a dividend yield. Why they do that, I, I don't know. Uh, we do see that the, <laughs> the balance sheet here, we got a current ratio of 3.4 versus 2.9. Debt to equity is fine, 0.5 versus 0.6. Uh, net profit margin, 18.5 versus 18.7. And return to equity, 19.6. Not as good as the industry at 23.3. Jace? You know, it is strange. I just pulled up uh, April 2023. Their earnings were a dollar and nine cents. In April 2022, their earnings were a dollar and thirty six cents. So, they're those are accurate numbers. Wow, um, that's surprising. Hmm. What's all the hoopla about? Well, I guess going forward, going earnings forward, are expected right. to grow. And I was thinking too, when we were talking about how they've been able to be nimble and how being them being a chip design company could actually hurt them in the long term. I mean, you think about the chip manufacturing. That is where there's a lot of barriers to interest because it entry because there is so much capital intensity there. Yeah. It's so expensive to build these plants where, you know, a lot of people say NVIDIA is so far ahead of the curve in terms of their design, <laughs> but that's right now. And, you know, there's other companies like AMD, for example, and I'm not saying this is going to happen. There could be another one that there's not as much capital intensity there that you could have a new chip company come about and say, oh, yeah, this is this is what we're going to do instead. And they have the great chip design, and they get somebody to manufacture the chip for them. So I think there's a lot more ease to have that competition right. there in the chip design. And right now they are further ahead. But, you know, two years from now, maybe somebody has a better chip design. And now I, what do they do? And I don't know how much percentage-wise chips come from Taiwan Semiconductor. I think it's a large percent. Yeah. we got to remember there are some rough waters there going forward with China that could cause problems. And that's why Intel and I think somebody else is spending Billions and billions of dollars to start manufacturing chips. I want semiconductors spending billions of dollars here too. I, oh, well, maybe they move from China to here. Man. <laughs> I don't, I, and I guess that would be a good thing because China can't stop them yeah. from having plants here. So, 
Yeah, but I mean, we'll see what happens yeah. there. It is very interesting. And, you ruined you my know, exciting story, though. I know. Sorry. <laughs> and, and NVIDIA, too, is, I mean, you know, I think they actually came out and said they, they've been impressed with Intel's um, manufacturing processes so far. So, I mean, that, it could be a help to Intel as well as they start to get their fabrication plans wow. up and running. That'd be, that'd be good. But let's take a look at those numbers going forward for NVIDIA. We'll start with the current price, though. $393.27, 52-week high, $419.38, the low $108.13. And this is just, quite frankly, what scares me. We know nothing can go to the moon or go yeah. up forever. Year to date, stock is up 169.2%. Over the last three years, the stock is up 348%. Over the last five years, it's up 529%. This one is just crazy. Yeah. Over the last 10 yeah. years, the stock is up 11,412%. So, again, congratulations to your mom for, for buying low there. Oh my God. It's done very, very well. But now, over the next 10 years, it's going to do 11, another 11,000%. Right. Uh, very, very unlikely. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. But the last uh, thing we'll look at is going forward to January 2025. I do see estimated earnings per share of $9.72. When we use our 16.6 multiple for that, we get a target sell price here of $161.35. So, uh, again, compared to $393, it's just it, it's expensive. I mean, it, it's a very, very expensive stock. And this is kind of what I'm talking about. As you look at January 2025, their earnings are estimated to grow about 25%. If they don't have that 25% earnings growth after an expected 132% earnings growth this year, I mean, that's where the stock will have problems because you can't trade at 50, even 41 times future earnings and not be growing at a multi, uh, earnings growth over 20%, right. I would say. Yeah. And actually, the other thing I noticed too, Chase, is that the there's 33 analysts. The range is pretty high. Somebody's yeah. at $7.73. Somebody's at fourteen thirty-three. So, yeah, the, the, the market's like, oh, yeah, this is going to happen. But 33 analysts, they're not all convinced of that yet. They're not thinking that, yeah, this is a done, done deal. Because we like to see a closer number. I mean, I think it says, what, uh, I show here like $10 or something for the earnings. 972 is what I have on Seeking Alpha. How much? 10? 972. Okay, yeah. Uh, actually, uh, Stock Rover shows 1037. But anyways, I mean, it's just like we'd like to see something closer. We say, yeah, maybe 950 to maybe 11, a tighter range. That's $7.73 to 1433. Not very tight. That that tells me it's not... Oh. On Seeking Alpha, it's even wider. The low is 540. Yeah. And it's, you know, there's been a lot of talk too because the the whole excitement's around their AI chips is these AI chips are not inexpensive. Is how big is the market truly for these types of chips? If companies can't afford them, again, how much sales is NVIDIA going to have from it? So, I mean, there's a lot of hype going into the AI stuff right now. We'll we'll have to see over the next year how it really kind of pans out. And AI, of course, is a long-term thing, but there's been so much hype built into it that if it doesn't happen at some pace within the next year, the, the, the hype will start to fizzle. Yeah. So, Christy, I hope that helps out there. I mean, it's uh, you and a lot yeah. of people having that same problem. Like, gosh, what do I do? It's up so much. You know, I, I it's yeah. Very like, impressive. when do we get out? <laughs> <laughs> I know if when you came. When do we sell and just? I know uh, if you came to us as a client, we'd say. Yeah, we got to sell it. Too expensive. <laughs> and that doesn't yeah. mean it won't go to 450, 500. Crazy things can happen, but we don't count on craziness. We count on the fundamentals. Right. Oh, already? Right. Well, thank you so much. <clears throat> okay, Christy, thanks for calling. Again. Bye-bye. Take care. <clears throat> All right, that is over the phone line, 833-288-0973. That's 833-288-0973. And uh, Chase, we did a post this past week on social media and I think I used the words, and i got to clear the air on this, price for perfection. People thought that meant, oh, 
buy it. <laughs> no, no, no. Price for perfection is not a good thing. Yeah. That means that everything has to keep going right for it to stay there. Not even go right. It has to go perfect. 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 <laughs> yeah. So when we say price for perfection, that's not a good thing. That's a bad thing. So yeah. You almost, you want you want it when it's priced for not perfection. Not you want perfect. it for you want their pricing <clears throat> it that things are going to be absolutely terrible. Yep. Because then if things aren't absolutely terrible and things are okay even <laughs> the stock will go up. Yeah, and when things improve, then the stock will go up. But if everything is going great and it's priced for perfection, like, oh, wow, this is perfect, something's going to happen. I mean, it's just life, you know, and it, it may take a, a day, a week, a month, six months. But when you have something trading its levels, it, it's hard. And then also, too, competition. You know, somebody else can come in and say, that, hey, we can do the same thing, thing for a better price. You know, nothing goes to the moon. Yeah, so. and as I said, with the chip design, I, I you know, <clears throat> I'm not very good in technology, but... Wait, I mean, if you're not good at technology, what's that I say mean, about I'm better me? than you. <laughs> but, you know, when you look at it, just the, the fundamental thesis of it is just on the, the chip design, it, the, right. the barriers to entry are so much lower than the, the chip manufacturing. Right. All right. Well, well let's, uh, let's go out to San Diego and speak with Val. Val, you're in the Smart, smart Investor Brent Chase. How can we help you? Yes, I, I am looking for a reading on IGT. This is... International uh, Gaming Technology. Okay. This should be at the uh, at the uh, same uh, question as pertains to NVIDIA. Okay. All right. And except you, from a different uh, different point of view. Right. And do you hold that, Val, looking to buy it? I am looking to buy it. Okay. Well, let's take a look at uh, uh, IGT, International Game Technology. Uh, their symbol is IGT. Uh, 1.9% float on the short side, not bad there, but I'm surprised only 46% institutional owned. We do see a P ratio of 24.4, which is a little bit high, but the industry is at 100.9. Price to sales, 1.3 versus 2.9. Price to book value, 3.7 versus 4. And price to cash flow staying pretty good as well, 5.2 versus 17.9. A very low peg ratio, which is good, 0.6 versus 32.8. Now, they have seen their earnings grow uh, year over year by 234%, well above the industry at 63. Sales are up 2.7% for IGT, not as good as the industry growth at 29.2. The five-year estimated growth, very good, 32.4 versus 7.7. Uh, I'm surprised they pay a nice dividend here, 3.1%. Uh, the industry is at 1.2, so a 3% dividend. That's pretty good. On the balance sheet, uh, quick, quick ratio, 1% versus 1.7, that's okay. <clears throat> debt to equity could be a problem here. 4.3 versus 1.6, and you got to understand what that debt is, what the equity is, because that's four times. That could be a warning sign there. Net profit margin, also concerned, 5.2 versus 18.4. Return on equity is 15.5 versus 8.3. So some, some good things, some bad things there. Chase, what do you got going forward? Well, actually, just looking at this company real quick, so I was curious what they do. It is a gaming company, actually, and their operating symbol uh, segments, excuse me, include global lottery, global gaming, and digital embedding. Uh, generates maximum revenue from the global lottery segment, which does provide lottery products and services to governmental organizations through operating contracts, facilities management contracts, lottery management agreements, and product sales contracts. So, sounds like they're behind. You know, maybe the uh, 
what is the Powerball? <laughs> Something like that, perhaps. <laughs> I just don't think that's a money winner. But uh, well, maybe it is a money maybe winner for them. For them. <laughs> yeah, well, depends what you say going forward. <laughs> <laughs> but looking at the current price here for uh, again international gaming technology PLC, the the current price is twenty six dollars and eight cents. Fifty two week high twenty eight dollars and ninety eight cents. Fifty two week low is fifteen dollars and one cents. If I go out to December 2024, I do see estimated earnings per share of $2.18 would give us a target sell price of $36.19. So it trades at a four PE of about 12 times. Doesn't look bad. Um, I I would disagree though. I I don't, they're not benefiting from the hype like NVIDIA because of the AI. Right. It is more focused on gaming instead of uh, AI. Yeah. So it was target sell price. You said 36.19. That, that that could be a possibility. Uh, things I saw that, that did kind of worry me. What, what was it that worried me there? Was the uh, debt to equity? Ne- yeah, the, the debt to equity. Yeah. So you got to check that that debt there, Val, because if it's too high, uh, that could be a drag on them going forward. See if the debt's being paid down or or is it increasing? But I think it's worth the research because you got some good numbers there. Already, I think we lost Val. Oh, we lose Val. Oh yeah, he's gone. Looked over, he's gone. So I'm sure he's still listening though. All right, uh, that opens the phone line, 833-288-0973. But look over, I see our financial planner, Harrison Johnson, is with us now. So Jim and Joanne, be patient. We'll get to you. Uh, let's talk to uh, Harrison Johnson, our CFP financial planner. Harrison, good morning. How you doing? Hey, guys. I'm doing well. How are you doing? Good, good. You talk about tax differences of interest and dividends. This is a very good topic. Uh, I'm going to turn my mic off and let you talk. All right. So with the volatility in the market um, and rising interest rates, a lot of people are looking at moving investment dollars toward CDs or savings accounts rather than the stock market. Um, First off, I don't think CDs or savings accounts should be considered a long-term investment. They're a place for short-term cash, but I don't think they you know, should be looked at as an alternative for actual investments. But mainly, I wanted to talk about the tax side of it. So when you're invested in the market, the income you get is in the form of dividends. When you have CDs or savings accounts, the income is in the form of interest. Dividends and interest are taxed differently. Interest income is fully taxable on the federal and state level, so your tax rate is based on whatever tax bracket you're in. On the federal side, you're either in the 10, 12, 22, 24, 32, 35, or 37% tax bracket. Dividends, on the other hand, are still taxable on the federal and state level, but on the federal side, they are subject to a different set of lower tax brackets. So, essentially, if you ordinarily be in the 10 or 12% tax bracket, your tax rate on dividends is 0%. If you are in the 22, 24, 32, or 35% ordinary income tax bracket, the dividend tax rate is going to be 15%. And then if you're in the highest tax bracket, 37%, your dividend tax rate is going to be 20%. So what this means is a lot of people, you know, are looking at moving to CDs and savings accounts and, number one, potentially missing out on higher investment returns in the market, but also they're going to cause their taxes to go up because they're moving from dividend income to interest income. So to put a dollar amount on it, if you are married and your gross income is around $120,000 or less, your dividend tax rate is going to be 0%. Above that, it goes up to that 15% number, which is a decent amount of income. It's not like this only applies to people if your income is under $30,000 or something. Um, To have an income 
of $120,000 and still have tax-free dividends is a pretty nice benefit. So, you know, a lot of people are looking at just the, you know, total return of it or, you know, looking at volatility. And um, I think people are, are making mistakes by, you know, pulling money out of the market and going toward, um, you know, traditionally more conservative or safe investments. Um, and missing out on returns and, and lower tax rates. Harrison, do you have, putting on the spot here, but do you have what the tax rate would be for that couple on interest income if they make 120000 as a comparison? So um, on the state side, it's going to be exactly the same. On the federal side, that is the threshold where you go from the 12 to the 22% bracket. So if it's interest, it's either going to be 12 or 22. Um, if it's a dividend, it's either going to be zero or 15. And, and you know, and we were, you probably didn't catch on the early in the show, a guy from CNBC who said, oh, you know, going to a 5% uh, T-bill or a T-bill or CD or whatever versus AT&T, we didn't even talk about the tax benefits you're talking about. So, and I we, and we do this in our workshop. We explain that if you have, uh, and, and right now we'll just make it easy, a 5%, you know, CD, you're pointing out that that's taxable. So you're going to get maybe a real return of, we'll call it 3%. And if inflation mm-hmm. is four and a half percent you're going backwards and this is why many people in their 40s 50s 60s and and beyond fall back because they do these silly things of putting long-term money into cds and forget about the growth and they forget about the taxes that you're talking about and and you know it is funny we never have any i I can't remember anybody talking about what you're talking about harrison about getting the benefit of taxes on dividends and we know it but i don't think people remember that yeah, and I, I was going to say I'm going to play devil's advocate here sure. real quick. Is on the T bill, it is probably going to be pretty close in terms of taxation, because here in California, it, uh, on a T bill, state, state tax free, tax but, free still, I mean, but then your federal is higher, so it probably right. is about a wash on the T bill versus dividends. But obviously, still well, a wash. I don't see how it'd be a wash because you still got to pay federal taxes. I'll, I'll touch on that as yeah. well, because you know that we could also expand it out to T bills and then municipal bonds, which are yeah. different types of interest, which are, are taxable different as well. So. Um, a T-bill is not taxable on the state level, but it's ordinary income on the federal side. So the federal side, um, you know, your, your tax rate is going to be 10, 12, 22, 24, or, or whatever it is. But on the state side, it's nothing. So Chase is right that the after-tax rate is going to be similar compared to a dividend and a T-bill because, you know, on a T-bill, you might have a um, – 12% federal, 0% state, uh, where on the dividend, you might have a 0% federal and then like, uh, well, in California, maybe a 9.3% state. And so it's, it's close in that. Um, and then on the municipal bond side, you know, this is another important point because municipal bond income, the interest from it is tax-free on the federal and state level as long as you buy municipal bond from your home state. But... In many cases, the yield that you get on municipal bonds are lower than what their corporate bond counterparts would be or their dividend uh, counterparts would be. So, you know, a lot of cases people go, oh, I want a muni bond because it's tax-free. Well, if your taxable income is $120,000 or less, your dividend income is also tax-free. So um, you got to understand that component as well. So just to be clear, it sounds like on the T-bill, on the lower tax brackets, I think you use 12%. It, it could be a wash. But on the higher tax brackets, it's probably not a, wa- a wash because your federal tax taxes will be higher. So there are times that can yeah, so yeah. In the Yeah, in the higher rates, your, your T-bill, you might have a, a, let's 
see, 22, 24% interest is on the federal side, but then on the dividend side, you're going to have 15% plus whatever the state is. Um, that might be 8 or 9.3. So it, it still comes out to be pretty similar. But in that case, I think the better, better consideration would be, well, with the T-bill, you know, all you're going to get is the interest. If you're investing something that has a dividend, you're also going to get potential appreciation. Yeah, and that's two things here. One, don't use uh, T-bills or CDs for long-term investments. And two, have a good financial mm-hmm. planner that can work through this to show people <laughs> the, the numbers before. Because people just do things, and then they wonder why they don't get ahead because they don't have a good financial planner. Mm-hmm. Harrison, thank you very much. We, we appreciate it, and uh, you have a great weekend. All right. Thanks, guys. We'll see you Monday. Okay. Bye-bye. Again, as our financial planner, our CFP, uh, Harrison Johnson, if you do want to have a free consultation with him, you can do it uh, by two ways. One, call the office, 858 858- Five four six four three zero six. Again, that's eight five eight five four six four three zero six. And just on the prompt, uh, Harrison, I think he's number five or six on the prompt there. Um, or go to the website smartinvesting two thousand dot com. That's smartinvesting two thousand dot com, and you can send him an email right there uh, for that free consultation. And I I encourage you to come in and compare Harrison to your financial planner. I can almost guarantee you, you're going to be <laughs> shocked. How little you're getting from your current financial planner? Well, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a great point Harrison just brought up about. I mean, even and that whole conversation really, what people should come away with is understanding your taxes for liquid money, right. because you know, depending on your tax bracket and you have liquid money, it might make more sense to be in a T bill. It might make more sense to be in a money market, or it might be make more sense to be in a short term muni bond. Right. All depends on your tax situation. What is going to be the best liquid? investment for you. And I say liquid because it, we're talking about short-term, short-term money right. here. And again, I want to point out too that Harrison does not you know, do any money money management, does not sell life insurance, does not sell annuities. His job is to sit down and talk with you about a financial plan and what is best for you financially, short-term and long-term. So again, give him a call at the office, 858-546-4306. Alright, phone number's here, 833-288-0973. That's 833- Two eight eight zero nine seven three. Let's go out to El Cajon and speak to Joanne, who's been waiting very patiently. Uh, Joanne, you're on the Smart Investor Show, Brent Chase. How can we help you? Thank you. I'm just walking along. Okay. Interested <laughs> in um, a ticker sign NFE, New Fortress Energy. NFE. Yes, Jim Kramer on Mad Money was talking to the CEO, and I liked him. Just wonder what you thought of the company. You like Jim Kramer? You like the CEO? The CEO. <laughs> the CEO, okay. Uh, nothing wrong with Jim Cramer, but I just want to have clarification on that. So, um, yeah, he gets it, a little annoying, but <laughs> yeah. And he, he does have some good guests, though. I mean, I, I do like that he, he puts on some good guests there. So let's say let's, uh, New Fortress Energy. Their symbol is NFE. They're in the utilities regulated gas industry. Uh, kind of high on the float side on the short, 7.6. The price on that. Institutional ownership only 51.9. They do have a high PE ratio of 57.2 versus 17.8. Price to sales 2.5 versus 1.1. Price to book value 13.5, about half the industry at 27. Price to cash flow 13.9 versus 8.8. Very good pig ratio though, 0.1 versus 87. Now, they have seen their earnings over the past year fall by 71.8% when the industry was up 11.2. I'd want to know why their earnings fell by 71% when the industry was up. However, sales did climb by 45% above the industry at 41%. They do pay a 1.4% dividend, kind of low on the low side. The industry is at, 40, at 4.2%. 
and they used 666% of their earnings paid out. So something happened to this company, hmm. I think, over the last 12 months. So you could see, depending on what's going on with it here, uh, perhaps that dividend raise in the future. I am concerned on the balance sheet, though. Current ratio 0.8 versus 1, and debt to equity 4.4 versus 1.1. So I'd want to check two things. Liquidity, 0.8 is a little bit worrisome there. And then two, the debt. I mean, that's kind of a high debt to equity. Could be a reason for it, but I'd want to check that. Net profit margin checks in at 4.4 versus 6.4, and return to equity is 8.2 versus 12.5. Chase? Yeah, so current price here for, uh, again, new Fortress Energy, ticker symbol NFE, $29.15. Wow, 52-week high, $63.06 here. And the 52-week lows, $25.06. Year-to-date, stock is down about 25.8%. Decent-sized company here with, with about a $6 billion market cap. If we go out to December 2024, though, I do see estimated earnings per share of $5.25 would give us a target sell price of $87.15. I mean, it sounds very attractive. They try to add a forward P.E. multiple of around five and a half times. Uh, earnings growth looks phenomenal here. For 2023, it looks like earnings growth is going to be around 50% is the estimate. Then for 2024, they're looking at 27.6% earnings growth. I do wonder, we've seen this in the past with uh, you know utility companies, the natural gas basis is where it looks like they are. Is they could have you know contracts and, and investments we'll call them in uh, you know the the commodities which can really drive earnings all over the place as they have to write down those investments at particular times. What they do is they try and smooth out the cash flows for the business. So I would want to understand that because it can create again a lot of earnings volatility for for companies like this. Yeah, and, and something happened <clears throat> over the past year with this company because they had a big drop in their stock. That's why I'm, yeah. I'm saying. I think it's because they, they might have been upside down on an investment or something in the, the commodity. Did uh, Jim Kramer ask that question or the CEO say what happened over the past year on the interview? No, he didn't. He just had a very bright, rosy outlook for the future. Well, I can say shame on Jim Kramer because he should have been asking that question, what happened over the past year? So I'm, I, I'm surprised he didn't ask that question. He may have an idea slept through it i don't know <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I listen to him a lot and some of it just goes over my head right right and and, and i think it's on uh, probably youtube or something but I, I i just i mean and you can get that information in other places as well but it just it, it has some potential but why did it drop so much i mean what what happened did they fix that problem and we like to buy a company when this happens if it's what we call a fixable problem if they fixed it going forward great great buy here if not that that's going to be mm-hmm. more problems Eh, gotta be worried there Already, thank you so much. All right, Have Joanne. A great day. You too. Thank you for calling. Bye bye. All right, that does open the phone line 833 288 0973. That's 833 288 0973. And Chase, you know, we had uh, the debt ceiling was a big problem last week. Oh, well, it's been resolved. Um, you know, I, I think President Biden's signing it today. Um, the thing I thought was kind of funny on the Wall Street Journal this morning. It was on page four. It's like, so now it went from like, oh, well, the country's going to collapse and so forth to oh, page four news. Uh, I bring this up because I think going forward, we're ticking off these problems going forward yeah. that I'm seeing clearer skies ahead for the right investments. I would not be investing in NVIDIA, uh, Apple, I mean, these high price companies, but I'm seeing these things getting better as we're going along. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, you know, <clears throat> there's an interesting interview actually yesterday with uh, David Kelly, who is... Um, I'm going to call him like the chief economist, chief economist at J.P. Morgan. I don't know if that's his like title. Yeah, yeah I, I think he's a very bright guy. I like listening to him speak. And then also the woman from Bank of America, similar kind of title there. 
um, kind of the lead research person, it seemed like. But she was talking about kind of exactly what we're saying is her price target on the S&P 500 is essentially flat from where we're at. And, you know, there is a lot of positivity there, but the tech stocks didn't go down at all during the debt ceiling problems. They haven't really gone down that much, even with the concern over rising interest rates. And it's kind of funny because typically growth stocks get hit with rising interest rates. Right. So I just don't see much room for that. But you can have the bottom part of the market really rise, but it won't lift the S&P if the big companies don't go anywhere. They come down slightly because of the the market cap waiting. And that's kind of what she was saying. And it's a belief that we hold as well is, you know, those companies that don't hold much weight, they go up 10, 15, 20 percent, maybe through the end of the year. You could do very well where the S&P just trades kind of flat for the rest right. of the year. And people like to compare the S&P 500. We do it because people want to do it. I don't like doing it. I mean, I just kind of like looking at, hey, you've done this on your investments and so forth. And I do that because I have never met my entire 40-plus years of doing this. I have never met one person put 100% of the money in the S&P 500. Well, I, I did 20% there. I did 20% into the international index and the small cap. So you why compare to something? Because when we manage money for people, we generally manage their entire portfolio. Mm-hmm. And so why would you compare to something that you wouldn't do means nothing. So Yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll kind of, I mean, people are aware of it. So, I mean, I don't mind comparing to it at times because we'll beat it some years. We'll lose to it some years. I mean, it's the reality of investing. But when you look over the long term, you're absolutely right. Because a lot of times people are like, oh, like, I think I'm just going to buy the S&P. Right. And maybe they do it for a year. But then, you know, maybe they're like 50 years old now. And they're like, well, I'm, I'm getting closer to retirement, so I think I maybe I should put some bonds in there. Right. Well, now then you're going to almost always lose the S&P in the long term <laughs> because you added too much in bonds perhaps. Or they also change their mind when things go down. And yeah. it's like like last year, it was down 20%. It's like, you know, I, I knew I, I took too much risk there, and I, yeah. I don't know why I put everything in the S&P, and now I'm going to put more in bonds. Or, oh, maybe I should put some in international or – Maybe I should put some in mid-cap, and then all of a sudden you've got this portfolio that is not the S&P 500. Right. and you got to wait for it. And, and that's why we talk about businesses buying small pieces of large companies, and they will go down. But when you own XYZ company and it goes down, you can see why it goes down. It gives you something to hold on to, and you may not like it, but with the S&P 500, you start testing, like, well, why am I holding this? I don't know what's in there. Oh, is it this and that and so forth? And you sell it because you don't understand it. So and I, I, I will say real quick is I am still very optimistic of our portfolio, even against the S&P 500, mm-hmm. because if you look over the last 10 years, value investing has not beaten growth stocks. Right. And uh, again, the S&P in theory is a blend of both. I would say the S&P now is quite heavily tilted towards those growth stocks if they've gotten much larger. So, I mean, you look over history, value typically does very well, but it has not over the last decade. I think over the next decade... Pretty high likelihood value is going to outperform growth, which should be a big boon for us as value investors. And Chase, when people come in for the free consultation, you know, look at uh, hiring us for for their money management. We show them these charts of long term value versus growth, and value just destroys it. But again, people look at one year, two year, three year. We're talking lifetime. I mean, when we when we manage somebody's money, I mean, in their forties, fifties. I mean, I'm I'm looking at management money for the next thirty, forty years now. I probably won't be around in 30, 40 years, but you you will be. But you look at value investing is the best long-term way to go. We have charts and graphs that prove that over and over again. Doesn't mean you'll be right all the time, but I'd rather be right over the long term than right sometimes in the short term. And I forget the, the exact data, but I, I think it was like 70% of the time or something that uh, you know value beats growth 
over a 10-year period. Right. Well, that still means there's 30% of the time <laughs> that growth stocks be yeah. valued, and, and we saw one of those. And I, I will tell you, I know one that was kind of, I don't say made-up numbers. I know it's somewhere in that ballpark. But, you know, I know value beats the stock market 84% of the time over five-year periods. Right. Well, yeah, we, we've seen essentially two five-year periods where value has lost the stock market over the, essentially the last 10 years. Yeah, 16% of the time, the stock market <laughs> will beat value stocks. But again, it, it's understanding that. And right now, yeah, the S&P has done very well and growth stocks have done very well, but things change. Yeah. And then things will change again where value will outperform. Well, let's go. We got about four minutes here. I, I let's go to San Diego and speak with Jeremy real quick. Jeremy, you're on the Smart Invest Show, Brent Chase. How can we help you? Hi. Good morning. How are you? Good. How you doing? I'm doing very well. Thanks for taking my call. So I have a question. Uh, there's I've done a a bit of research on SCHD. It's a dividend equity stock from Schwab. And my wife and I are about to sell our house in Southern California, so we're going to make quite a bit of money. And I'm trying to. Talk my wife into putting a hundred grand into this ETF. I've seen some models, 10, 20, 30 years to grow up to you know three million bucks, uh, reinvesting the dividends. So I wanted to see, do you think that's a good bet? Am I overvaluing it? Do you think that it's going to be safe? It's almost like the S and P five hundred, but the top one hundred that has a ten year uh, proof of paying a dividend. Right. With a huge market cap, so I just wanted some info on that. Yeah, and, and Jeremy, we can talk conceptually here because I like the idea. I think going long term, it does make some sense. The, the thing is, I don't know much about the Schwab strategy trust that you're looking at this ETF. Uh, I'd want to make sure that they don't uh, use any leverage. They don't do any options. Uh, what do they hold? Um, I, I, I'm not a big ETF guy because I what I don't like is you get the good with the bad. Um, but I can you find, can you see it, Jason? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm just kind of looking at it. I mean, there's again the, the thing I like about, I'm sorry, the thing that worries me about ETFs is there's some good and there's some bad. I mean, right. you know, like like Cisco's in in this is about 4.2 percent of the portfolio. I think Cisco's a good company to trade about yeah. 12 times future earnings. That's good. But then PepsiCo is uh, again about 4.4 percent. They trade about 25 times future earnings. And then you have you know Texas Instruments. They kind of talked about that before, but they trade at 24 times future earnings. Coca Cola 24 times future earnings. So I mean, you have some good companies in there. We've talked about Home Depot. They trade about 20 times future earnings. You have some good companies in there, but I do worry about some of the companies that worry me in the portfolio, essentially. Right, and and Jeremy, what worries me too is that you know when it doesn't go well, like we're just talking about the S and P 500, you might sell at the worst time because your wife's going to say, "Oh, see, we lost money. Just so go ahead and get out." We talk about if you had yeah. businesses like, no, these are good companies. Look at, you know, here, here's what they're earning. Here's a, you know, so it gives you something to hold on to with the ETF, you know, based on past performance, which is no guarantee of future results, uh, we always say. But it, it, if it doesn't go sure. well, um, you're going to be sleeping in the doghouse. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm already there, brother. I'm already there. <laughs> and I was going to say, Jeremy, too, if, if you wanted, uh, you know, that is what we do for our clients, yeah. again, is that build that value portfolio of companies that we know, that we like, that have good valuations. I mean, that that is, again, the service that we offer. If you are interested, you can go to our website, smartinvesting2000.com, and uh, you can just send us a message there, and we can uh, set up a, an appointment to kind of go through how we actually do things for our clients and see if that would be a good fit for you and your wife. And, and then if it does doesn't go well, you don't get blamed. You say, yep, Brent and Chase's fault, not my baby. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
It's smart investing, babe. You can't hold it on me. <laughs> well, shoot. There's a clip to go. Bell. Uh, Bell. Uh, Jeremy, thanks so much for calling. Uh, thank you for listening to Smart Investing Show. It is for information purpose only and should not be used as investment advice. If you'd like to discuss in more detail your investment needs, have other investment questions, feel free to call myself, Brent Wilsey, or Chase Wilsey at 858-546-4306. Again, that's 858 858- Five four six four three zero six, or go to our website smartinvesting2000.com that's smartinvesting2000.com a lot of great information there the newsletter's there and again you can sign up uh, for an appointment with us there as well thanks for listening we'll be back next week right here on the Smart Investing Show so amusing to think I did all that